Welcome to the podcast that unveils the future of investing. In each episode, we explore asset classes, trends and technologies with founders, investors and experts involved into shaping that future. Today, your host George Alifura speaks to Lex Sokolin, fintech entrepreneur, head economist at Consensys and visual artist, who also publishes the Fintech Blueprint, a newsletter and podcast reaching over 100,000 fintech futurists. Lex, great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. Can you tell us about your background prior to your current role at Consensus and how did you develop such a diverse set of interests and skills? Yeah, thanks for that question. The answer is just chipping away at the types of things that I like and I've been finding interesting for now a little bit over two decades where I had grown up doing a lot of visual arts and always had a streak of really being interested in abstract representation, in creating systems and frameworks and expressing that visually. And then I also had a part of me that was really focused on a fairly traditional kind of prestige gold star seeking path. How do I work in investment banking? How can I be in finance? How can I do economics or the law and so on? It was quite challenging to juggle that in the beginning of my career because these things are are very different and you don't find a lot of investment bankers who want to code interactive art in Flash in 2006. But as I progressed through my journey, the combination of these things became a bigger and, you know, a bigger advantage to the point where I find it almost confusing now because like everyone is expected to be a multimedia visual artist and a fintech futurist and also be trading crypto all day long and having managed some sort of ridiculous amount of capital and traditional finance. And it's very bizarre for me, the world we live in, because it uh, seems to align so much with the things that I find compelling. My career progressed from position at Lehman in investment management, where I'd say I got my Wall Street training, which I'm still very thankful for, both the training and the, the Lehman bankruptcy, which I think is a gift as an experience. And that liberated me to entrepreneurship and to build my first fintech company starting in 2009, where I brought some of the design and brand experience to a startup and designed every screen and built the company, focusing on robo-advice and digital wealth. And got smacked around a reasonable amount on that journey because being an entrepreneur is hard. And if you don't know how to sell and you don't know how to market, no matter what you have on paper as a strategy, it's worth absolutely nothing. And forged my way through that entrepreneurship experience and towards the end of my participation there, just thought that there was a bigger world beyond how to put a wealth management software onto a website in terms of what the opportunities are and spent a few years doing deep dive research around it, uh, around what those opportunities were. In 2016, I joined a equity research firm as a partner focused on, on fintech and looked at artificial intelligence, looked at blockchain, looked at AR, VR pretty very early on, as well as the neobanks and the paytex and so on, and became very persuaded by the arguments that Ethereum started making in 2017 about computational blockchains and what it is that they can deliver to the world. And, and so around 2019, I jumped to join Consensus, which is uh, at the heart of Web3, a company that offers MetaMask, number one wallet for accessing Web3, as well as lots of other stuff uh, that the company does, and have been on that roller coaster ever since. Well, there's so much here. This is a podcast about, you know, the future of investing in particular, but it's the future of work. 
And how does it work now? So if we look at your current position as head economist as consensus, as well as creator, what's the hardest thing about managing? Oh boy, we're going to go immediately into therapy. So I have a bunch of personality disorders, which motivate me to work very hard. I spent a lot of time when I was younger chasing the gold stars of prestige and approval from different brands, the Lehman brand, and I wanted the Columbia brand and so on. And I, at, at one point I was like, this, I don't need any more brands. I've gotten as many gold stars as I want. It just doesn't matter anymore. But underneath it, the behavior that led me to be able to get those brands never went away. The insanity that you put into, for example, studying for exams to get into business school and into law school and doing that over two, three years, that drive then translated into the startup and then it, it just stayed there and then it translated into the current moment. And I found myself to be really addicted to saying yes to everything. And the more that I worked, the more there were things to say yes. And I think this is at the core, it's a philosophical core of a lot of people's careers is you go from saying yes to everything to saying no to most things and then picking the things that you do. And I'm fortunate enough now to be on the side where I have to learn how to say no. And it's deeply uncomfortable because I've so hard for such a long time to establish for myself the systems that generate opportunity. I am not a, like naturally, I'm not a social extroverted, charismatic, easygoing person. I, I can be introverted, I can be social, I can be antisocial, I can be anxious. And so a, a lot of what I was doing early on in my career is learning how to build systems for myself that would enable me to be very impactful given my strengths and my weaknesses. And so my strengths, I can reverse engineer how to get a lot of different outcomes. I can figure out how to get to 100,000 you know, subscribers in a newsletter and then show up every day for four years straight and generate, lay that brick and generate the outputs to get me to a place where the system works. And then I can automate it and build, put in robots and hire people and so on and so forth. And so I think from the outside, it looks like I'm doing a lot of work right now, but that's not the case. I am, but I'm doing the work I'm doing now is for the next five to 10 years. The work, the output that you're seeing today is from my last five to 10 years, where the systems and those frameworks and like very literally, like how do you connect, how do you scrape 50 RSS feeds for keywords? How do you take those keywords and feed it into filters? How do you get people to figure out which of these things are important or not qualitatively. All of those are systems to be built and managed. And anyway, all that to say that I've been very carefully weaving those things together, the company building, the research, the strategy thinking, the investment practice, they're all intertwined. And I'd say the challenge that I have now is to find a balance in a sustainable way relative to living my life rather than continuing to chase like this very self-guided. This is fascinating and at very much at a personal level as well, being someone who I'm not going to compare, but tries to run a business, run a podcast, a YouTube channel, uh, deal with their kids, etc. I wish I could ask you a hundred questions about this, but instead of asking tips for myself, we're going to move on and talk a bit more about crypto and in particular 
crypto in the wealth management and investing space. So you mentioned it already here, but I, I'm going to quote a podcast from FinTech Takes where you said digital wealth managers is a little bit like Spotify for CD-ROMs. Can you expand and tell us a bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, and this is a metaphor I've picked up a while ago. I felt it in my bones back in 2010. So I was, I'm going to mix up a little bit the story just so that it's um, novel. When I was building my first real entrepreneurial journey with a company called Nestec Wealth, that's, it's a company that did what it sounds like. Nestec is in investment advisory and it was all automated. So the Betterment Wealthfront model, we're around the same vintage. And spending so much time thinking about how do you pay, how do you take the financial advisor flow, what they do, and turn it into software and put it on the web. And this is a straight web 2.0 playbook where you automate a human task, you make it into cloud software, and then you start trying to gather an audience largely through content. And after a few years of doing this, three, four, five years, I noticed a thing where my company, it didn't matter how good my software was. What mattered was how many users it had and how I was attracting people. And then there were other companies at the time like Lending Club and there's some asset management companies like using big data, for example, to, to generate investment recommendations. I could feel the difference, but I didn't know how to articulate it. And so I just want to point to that because it's taken me a while to get to this extremely obvious insight. And the extremely obvious insight is what fintech largely did, fintech being robo-advice, kind of neobanks, a lot of the digital wallet payments apps like Venmo, Cash App, and today everything else, Robinhood and so on, is fintech took the store where products are, traditionally that store is a, a bank branch or an ATM that dispenses things, or you get a loan underwritten from a loan officer or an insurance officer that's under, that's making a risk decision, or you go to a financial advisor's office and they talk you through some stuff. And that's the store where you buy products. It's just you go into a store, you buy some apples. You go into a branch and you, you buy some financial products. And what FinTech did, and I'm overgeneralizing, but it's still accurate at, at the heart, is it's taken that store and put it onto a phone. That's it. There's lots of FinTech that's, we're going to cut some costs in the middle office and we're going to make your, blah. It, it, it's fine. Those are great company. You can build great businesses about it, but that's not the heart of what Web2 fintech is. Web2 fintech is about taking the distribution of financial products out of human hands and putting it onto technology chassis, which delivers it to you on your phone or your browser. And there, that's deeply unsatisfying. It is not something that will change or transform real behavior. It will, everybody, if you're an entrepreneur, you really, you're not trying to settle. You're trying to take a brick and throw it through the window of the largest competitor you can mm -hmm. find. You want to destroy Goldman Sachs because your company will be better. Whoever you're competing with, you want to win like unconditionally because what you're working on is a step above anything they've done. And so we have evidence of that happening. The way that Netflix decimated and humiliated Blockbuster into nothingness. The way that Amazon decimated and humiliated the bookstores, Barnes and Noble, nothing is left, ashes and nothing. And this is definitely not what happened with finance. Yes. It's not. It is, 
I would say fintech was embarrassed because they weren't even acquired by traditional banks. They weren't even acquired. They were merely copied and replicated with a five-year lag. But regardless, there, there are few examples where new brands broke through. But the new brands, and the new brands are fantastic, Square, Stripe, and the rest. But it is not a matter of such a significant step change as to transform the fabric of reality. And again, it depends on what kind of entrepreneur you are. And for me, that was always very motivating. Like, I want a new page to draw on. I don't want the old page to color in for others. And the second step where we are today is this idea of not transforming the store, but changing the factory. So you're, the transformational thing is not how I can deliver to you CD-ROMs on the internet, mm -hmm. how to be the Spotify of CD-ROMs. The transformational thing is when Napster kills the music industry. That is the spear that pierces the beast. And so digital manufacturing's in place, uh, sorry, digital distribution is in place, but digital manufacturing is not. Whereas for things like Google, it was the digital manufacturing of content through websites that made Google able to distribute it through the search engine. And there's endless examples of this. And so for me, what I see in crypto is the ability to make financial instruments in a way that is digitally native on chain where anybody can be a financial engineer if they want to, it's open source. And so that drives the cost of digital manufacturing to zero. And essentially then you have the, the distribution chassis on top of all of this living in the web. And that is a deep existential sort of threat. Now, is it going to play out? Don't know. Does it have a chance to do something meaningful? Yes. In a way, just putting distribution into a phone does not. And I go back to my experience 10 years ago. I could feel that Lending Club was focused on manufacturing. I could feel that the data-driven investment insights stuff was focused on new product rather than new distribution channels. And so I think today that's where a lot of the innovation is happening. And it, it, it is the transformational step that I think is just really compelling for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur. And just to go back to basics, so the goal of that is better outcomes for any investors. And on the crypto side, individuals are leading. MetaMask is launching an institutional variation, but is it what we're talking about? The power in the hands of the individual investor? I'm going to be a little bit frustrating here and answer the question from a very macro perspective. Like the, the micro answer is readily available, but I don't think it's very interesting. Now, the micro answer is crypto came from open source and from like countercultural movements. And as a result, a lot of it is bottoms up. Entrepreneurship works bottoms up. It doesn't work top down. And so there are these cycles between going too far into crypto anarchism with too many ICOs, too many NFTs, and then it swings back to more regulated, more institutional, and it goes back and forth. In this particular case, because finance doesn't want to be dragged into a new paradigm, it'll only do it when the customers are there. And so the, the customers are there now. And so institutions like hedge funds and private equity, so the alternative asset class managers are, the meaningful ones are all essentially in running crypto portfolios or running NFT launch businesses, starting with 0.72 all the way through any hedge fund you name, all the tiger cubs. So that's the micro answer, but I don't think it's particularly interesting because 
I think we often misunderstand what finance is. And it's like asking, for whom is the video revolution of YouTube? What is the point of a YouTube video? We have movies. What's the point of YouTube videos? And the answer is people's creativity is an, a natural output. It's an energy that comes out of the human condition. And so YouTube allows for that to be expressed. It is not because there is a market for video that people go and build video. It's because people have told stories from the cave until now, and they will continue to tell stories when we're in the stars. It is just the nature of what we do. And so the reason why there are videos and content on YouTube is because that's the nature of the internet. And that is the particular expression. It's nothing to do with the music labels or the film studios or any of that. That's just structure that comes later. And similarly, finance, our industry structure has no inherent meaning. There's nothing special or meaningful about custodians, investment managers, financial advisors. None of that is, as it is divine or special. It is an output of an economy. So you start with people, then there is exchange between people. They work, they make things, they sell them, they buy them. And out of that come particular financial functions. So first you have payments because you're, you have commerce. So you have money in motion. Then once people have lots of money in motion, it needs to rest, right? So money stops moving around. And if money's not moving around, then you need depository accounts and then risk transformation, you get lending and, and underwriting. And then capital markets are sprouting up because there's capital that's seeking more arcane and interesting places to be. And then you have longer term duration stuff, social safety nets, insurance, retirement, and so on and so forth. And that um, structure will develop anywhere and everywhere where you have people. And what's going on with crypto today is that economies are developing in a place where they haven't been before, which is on the internet in a different shape, in the shape of Web3. Whereas Web2 are these big attention monopolies that are powered by advertising. In Web3, you have much more human economies. You can buy and sell digital assets. You can buy and sell digital objects. There are digital worlds in which you participate. There's reputations. There's things that look a lot more like, you know, what a tribe or a village does. And because they're economies, you have the derivative of the economy, which is financial services. And that's what's growing on top. If you're outside the system, and you are a traditional financial institution, and you are by nature orthodox and conservative because that's what you've been told to be by the sovereign, by the government for a really long time, you're gonna be looking at that and thinking, how do I extend into there? And there's lots of ways to do that, whether it's capital, whether it's business building, whether it's investing, but I wanted to zoom out a little bit because I don't find the particular signal of like institutions are here to be very meaningful mm -hmm. because what's meaningful is what's growing up from first principles. Yeah, so what you're saying is there's first principles with money or means of exchange, and we're still gonna pay, we're still gonna at some point store it and some kind of a return from it. But that means the whole, um, back to the analogy of the, let's say the financial system and the shop, when I think of, let's say, making a transaction through my broker, there's the broker, the exchange, then there's the probably netting, 
custodian, etc. Those are not first principles. Yes. Not that's not important. It's really important to understand how the system works in order to participate within it or build around it or build a new one. And I have a lot of experience and training in that system. I spent many years in that. But I think what's really liberating about Web3 is getting connected to the idea that new systems can be built, that it is possible. It is a, we're not trapped. And I guess the first principles point is, let's say the, the ship sails from the United Kingdom to the United States and 20 villagers land on the shore and practice all the genocide that they do and at the same time continue to grow their town. At that moment of time, what is the dollar? What is it backed by? If you were to say these 20 people are going to be 300 million people and the dollar is going to go from being worth know, a million in GDP to, I should know this off the top of my hand. Uh, uh, I would have said 30, but uh, somewhere there, let's say 20. Then that you would have seen that, wow, what a Ponzi, what a crazy scheme. Yeah, stick around here for 300 years and you're going to get 30 trillion GDP and you're going to get all this finance structure. It's, and it's, you know, it's almost unbelievable. Or you take, a sh you take a ship to Mars, Elon Musk succeeds, and we put 200 people on that ship to Mars. And we send them off or we send them to some far distant planet in a different sun system to populate a new planet. And we send that ship. They're not going to have a Barclays or a Bank of America or a New York Stock Exchange or custodians or any of the stuff. And it, it, it so profoundly doesn't matter that they don't have it. it it's, that structure is there to operate the economy that we have. But when you get to a new place where there's a new economy, you really do have an opportunity to build on new ground. And now I could be completely wrong, and it, it is possible that Web3 is overpromising on the new economy, or that the tales of the metaverse from Facebook and Microsoft are more technology hopium. It's possible, but I think it's a much more interesting life to believe that it's going to work and that that generates an opportunity to build new things from scratch. So if I'm trying to now bring it back to earth and what we can do right now in this moment. Yeah. And if I take the, what I think is the first principle of, okay, when mo money is not moving around, it's resting and we're trying to do something out of it, which we call investing or finding yield, etc. What are the things that are fundamentally changing and what are the opportunities for investors today? Yes. Yeah. So you can think of Web3 as an emerging market. And already in this emerging market, there are asset classes. And I think anybody that looks at the space should think about an asset allocation. They should think about specifically what exposure they want to what themes, and then what is their risk tolerance, what is their risk capacity, and so on. And for many people in crypto who are overlevered and are all in, that's a different investment strategy than where I'm personally at. And I'm likely a lot more conservative than lots of other people because my viewpoint is a much longer time horizon. And I think there are things that look like fixed income that generate interest rate returns on particular assets. There are things that look like equity exposure in the sense that the underlying performance of a particular project might correlate with appreciation or depreciation in that asset. There are things that look like objects, like functional objects in the way that you would buy a house or in the way that you would buy a piece of art or in the way that you would buy some 
rare thing and expect it to go up in value over time if the author becomes more more famous. So for example, if you're buying, if you're a private equity firm and you're buying rights to music publishing, to you're buying like distribution rights for creative work. So there's lots of asset classes of this type and you can match that to different investment objectives. On the fixed income side, there are things that, I mean, most there's not an easy way to explain them. I think the easiest way I've come up with is it's like a margin. So let's say you, uh, you're a client of Morgan Stanley and you want to borrow some shares of Apple to go extra long, or you want to lend some of your shares of Apple to go to generate some additional interest. They'll have a margin desk. That margin desk will pay, I don't know, 5% or something like that for the shares and they'll charge 10% to the borrower. The borrower wants to borrow them because they want to go, again, extra long or extra short. And so you, the, the margin desk, end of the day, is intermediating leverage. So the demand for leverage is uh, a derivative on the, the, the stock market. And in crypto, there is a lot of machines that intermediate demand for leverage. They do this automatically and you can get interest rates based on how other people want or do not want to participate in the token markets. And that's just a consistent place of finding additional interest rate yield. Now, if you were to go into Pakistan's equity markets and provide the borrowing of certain equities, you would generate an interest rate and it's the same thing. So that's one of the sources there. If we still stay on this yield-seeking mechanisms, I'd be interested to understand more the different type of yield and the different type of risks that come with it. I think one of the bright spots that maybe to, to, we can focus on as equities crumble, crypto crumbles, etc., is to, to, to look at, for example, stable coins. Could we compare this, for example, to high-yield bonds in US dollars? Is it a relevant comparison and what? how we can go from there. It's probably a relevant comparison insofar as it goes into a risk-seeking bucket. Mm -hmm. I don't think from an instrument perspective, it's necessarily a relevant comparison, right? Because let's talk through what a high-yield bond is going to do for you. You're underwriting a company or sometimes you're underwriting a project such that there is a company specific, hey, I want to build a new Coca-Cola factory, or I want to add a new distribution arm, or I want to launch a new product. Because I want that, I need capital, and to have capital, I'll put out an obligation in the, in the form of some sort of note, and then I'll pay it back out of my cash flows as a company. So there's an there's a idiosyncratic risk about some particular company, and you evaluate that particular bond, and then maybe there's also some sort of structuring by the asset manager or the investment firm, right? Like if this is a basket of these things so that it's smoothed out, you're often taking Lehman Brothers risk in addition to your underlying company risk. Lehman Brothers did a lot of good stuff in packaging bonds and then defaulting and wiping everybody out. Where your, your broker is also intermediating the packaging of the instrument such that if your broker dies, your instrument wipes out as well, in addition to the underlying companies in the portfolio. Okay. Now, if you look at stable coins in crypto, so stable coins are like if in traditional finance, like a cash and equivalent, 
Like that's where mm-hmm. they'd be classified. They are in the. Uh, you can think of a money market. You can think of a euro dollar. There's lots of things that appear to be a dollar. Which dollar for for investing is very different from a payment dollar for buying a sandwich. You don't buy sandwiches with money market funds because that's lunacy and or like re- just really inconvenient. In crypto, everything sits on the same rails because it's a better system than our traditional financial system. So it's possible to use your money market funds to buy sandwiches, but Generally speaking, that's not what people really do. Some new behaviors, I think, are potentially emerging. Okay, so you have your cash equivalent, and then the cash equivalent can be put into a box where you borrow or somebody else borrows. And when you have borrowing and lending, the way that the price of the borrowing and lending is set is a variable interest rate. And that's set by the market in the same way that if you go to the market, you want to buy apples and lots of people want to buy apples, apples will be expensive. And if nobody wants to buy apples, there'll be lots of discounts. In the same way, the variable interest rate is set for this, the stable coins, lending and borrowing. And so then it's, okay, what risks are you taking? Is it likely that, is it, you know, how it's possible that the stable coin potentially die off uh, and default? It may be. It depends which yeah. one it is. And there's lots to say there. But it's less likely that happens than a junk bond fails out. Because it's not, oh, will this project work? It's usually some collateralized thing, especially in the case of USDC. And then there is the, what about this DeFi smart contract? What happens if the company that writes these contracts, everyone goes to jail because un- un- unregistered securities? It doesn't matter at all, actually. You can remove all the people from from a lot of these DeFi protocols, and it doesn't because the smart contracts are written to a gigantic machine, which is a computational blockchain that performs forever and ever and you know never fails in most circumstances. So the company failing actually doesn't matter if the protocol is mm-hmm. big enough. If the protocol is very small and is still quite centralized, then of course it does. And then the third and new risk, which is really important, is... What if the code's bad? What's the cybersecurity risk? What if my wallet gets hacked? And so this is actually the category of risks that people need to understand that they're taking on. So the more packaging and tokenization, i.e. securitization that you're doing, the more software cyber risk you're taking on because you're introducing vulnerabilities and vectors of attack at your money. Now, that's what you get rewarded for. You get higher interest in earlier protocols because you're walking on the razor's edge often. But I would say that's the that's the primary risk that you should think about. So yeah, that's a really interesting matrix. I think the process you describe is very much DeFi, going truly pro decentralized um, protocols. But for many of us, for let's say um, more beginner uh, practice or small amounts, et cetera, it will go through a platform like Kraken, like Coinbase, et cetera, which still allows to stake, et cetera. Does that allow that? So is it the same risk profile? Do I have a new risk or is it the same as what you described earlier? I think you're adding the risk of your counterparty, right? Again, the, the counterparty risk when you use DeFi is lower than the counterparty risk when you use centralized exchanges or traditionally yeah you're introducing however with a centralized counterparty more consumer protection Mm -hmm. so you're introducing the idea that maybe you'll be bailed out 
that maybe because this this platform has lots of customers, they will care to make you whole if, for example, all their staking funds are lost. And the reason why they make you whole isn't because they love you, but because that's the the regulatory environment for them. And so I think you that's the trade-off you you would be mm -hmm. making. You're also and this is the philosophical end, and I'm not all the way there, need to make this point strongly, but when you use a Kraken or a Coinbase and you have them custody your money, you have them custody your money. And so that's not wrong. It's nice. I love delegating. Take care of me, please. I don't think that, like, I would not feel safer holding all my money on, all on my own where I'm responsible for everything. That's stressful and anxious. At the same time, you need to understand what it means when you are using a bank or you're using an exchange, which is most, most of the interesting opportunities in DeFi you will not be able to access because you're, you're in the, like when you go skiing, there's mm -hmm, a park mm -hmm. for kids where you sure, learn yeah. how to ski. Like that's yes, where you learn. Yes. We talked about Kraken uh, and the Coinbase of this world. There's a other player which has been in the news recently. It's BlockFi, which has been fined a hundred million dollars and presented it as a victory. So can you comment, how, how do you understand the risk there again, in terms of how they managed to deliver so much yield? It, it's just margin. It's demand by institutional investors to take a position. And if I'm an institutional investor and I want to go long and I have really big portfolios, then I need to, I, I need another capital base to do it against. And so I think in the BlockFi case, it's the activities that they were doing were very obviously, as the lawyers would say, securities, not in my judgment, obviously, sure, sure. but in, in the view of the SEC. And I'm a fan of consumer protection. And I think unregulated markets can swing into really funky places. Personally, this is a personal view is I just, I find it really befuddling when you've got something like BlockFi find a hundred million dollars for generating really amazing financial outcomes mm -hmm. for people. Like it's, those aren't damages. There's no lawsuit that investors lost money and this investment firm defrauded them by misrepresenting something. It's, yeah, I think there's probably some negligence in disclosure, which is damaging and is a bad practice, but there, there's no investor damages where people were hurt. In fact, they outperformed the traditional financial system probably by an order of 50 to relative to interest rates in an account. And there's lots to say about the traditional financial system kind of failing savers and the inflation, all that stuff, which I think is probably outside of our scope at this stage of the conversation. And then on the other hand, you have settlements like the one with EOS that ran a year-long ICO and got away with $4 billion, which then collapsed into nothing. And they were able to get a $25 million fine and then use that for a $10 billion SPAC, which has again halved in value since. And so to me, there's just such a deep disparity and lack of precision about what outcomes are and what the principles are is very hard to react to as an industry participant, other than hoping for like a, a more consistent and a more grounded uh, set of enforcement. There's an interesting take and from one of my other favorite uh, newsletters, Matt Levine, who said that one way to go about it and to grow fast is to pay to get clarity on regulation and 
That's a little bit what BlockFi did. But as we wrap up this conversation, I'm very happy to have had greater clarity in terms of those risks, because eventually if people allocate significant amounts, yield-seeking mechanisms on the blockchain, they really need to understand uh, the risk that goes with it. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, your own digital art and uh, the fact that you use NFT as a membership. And by the way, I was looking at the price of Ethereum. We might be close to a historical arbitrage opportunities because your membership to uh, <laughs> the FinTech Group is $240 yes. and the NFT is 0.11, if I got it right, and Ethereum to 2,600. So it's still not. We're coming close to this. The net present value is the arbitrage, right? Because the NFT is lifetime and the, the 240s per year. There you um, go. And I would say folks, yeah, yeah, folks subscribe for longer than a year on average. Especially for our listeners. Do you want to comment perhaps not so much on the NFT market in general, your particular use of it and how do you see that? Yeah. So in, in my role as consensus, I spent a lot of time focused on DAOs and DeFi and, and NFTs and, the, and all of these things. And in, in my writing for the FinTech Blueprint, which is just a, pra a research practice that I do in order to be uh, visible and to have a strong point of view on stuff, it's also a space for me to do kind of experiments. And so I think one of the experiments is token gating and so I, I ran I ran a 12-month experiment, give or take, where you know, people from the crypto world who wanted to hold an NFT of art that uh, was generated from code that I've written would give, get them access to, to the archive. It's trying to bridge the Web3 and the Web2 models together. And I think it was an interesting experiment. And I learned about my audience. And in particular, I learned that a Web2 audience and a Web3 audience are very different and that you can't expect Web2 people to go and buy token-gated NFTs. But it was a lot of fun and it was easy to do, you know, just issue some stuff on OpenSea, put it in the newsletter, and occasionally somebody will show up and with a proof of ownership and I add them to, to Substack with permissions. I think they're much, much better NFT models than whatever it is that I've tried. And you can see that from folks like The Generalist or Friends with Benefits or, or really any artist that is focusing full-time on NFTs. They're much, much better approaches than like, here's a token gate. And I definitely plan to do more there and just finding the right time to do it. It's been fantastic to have this conversation. I want to direct uh, our listeners to, of course, consensus.net. And then if you want to grab the Web3 wallet, metamask.io. And for me, I'm on Twitter, Sokolin, and also check out the FinTech Blueprint at fintechblueprint.com. Fantastic. And we'll put all those links into the description. And I'm very grateful for your time and your insight, Lex. Thank you so much. My pleasure.